Welcome to the Addison Gallery of American Art. I'm Tamara Vishai, host of the art history podcast, The Lonely Palette, and throughout this three-episode series, your guide to the Addison, as we celebrate its 90th anniversary by looking at some of the most important and provocative objects in the museum's collection. Join me on a thematic stroll through the galleries as we poke and probe both what these objects mean to art history and to each other. Today, exploring abstraction. Want to scare someone the minute they walk into your museum gallery? Tell them the show is about abstraction. Now watch them turn heel and run every time. What is it about this idea of abstraction, of no fixed narrative, of shapes and spatters and goop with no discernible meaning that strikes so much fear into the hearts of people who just really want to have a pleasant day at the museum? It's like those three innocuous syllables, abstraction, contain all the trepidation visitors have about not understanding the art and run counter to everything people expect art to be a canvas that disappears under its narrative, or a beautifully rendered story of stuff. Abstraction, on its face, is about none of those things. It's an experience, not a painting of something. It's about the elements of painting itself, not necessarily what those elements are in the service of representing. It draws attention to the presence, even the two-dimensionality of that canvas. And it makes it feel like it's our fault for wanting the art to tell us a story. Instead, we're stuck with this abstract painting that feels like it's sitting with its arms crossed, all deliberately withholding. But okay, first of all, Abstraction, as we're about to discover, is really just a victim of bad PR. A quick history lesson. The first abstract paintings, ironically enough, were meant to be the most democratic. Painted in the 19-teens by Russian artists on the cusp of revolution, the suprematists, as they called themselves, they were desperate to, quote, free art from the burden of the object. That is, narrative and social context, in an attempt to break away from the cloistered museums of the ruling elites and put it in the hands of the largely illiterate Russian populace. Rural farmers could certainly appreciate shapes and colors, these artists argued, if not biblical and allegorical narratives. Let's make art for them, for the rural farmers. Of course, this backfired even in its own moment, as idealized depictions of farmers were far more preferable among actual Russian farmers than this puzzling black square floating in space. And once the avant-garde art scene got its hooks in abstract art, the democratic mission fell by the wayside, and the vast majority of viewers, like the people who you just scared away from your exhibition, well, they could only focus on its inaccessibility. But does the lack of a fixed narrative really mean that there's nothing inherently to be accessed? We think we don't have the tools to understand abstract art, but we do. They're already in our art appreciation arsenal. We bemoan the lack of narrative until we realize that narrative comes in many flavors and that the artists themselves came to create these paintings from their own rich experiences and are now offering them to you. 
We don't realize how earnestly we're welcomed to project our own personal narratives onto these paintings. There are stories behind the materials. There are stories we allow the materials to tell. A figural narrative painting might tell you a story, or it might draw on your existing knowledge of stories. But when a painting has no fixed narrative, it breaks open to allow our minds to wander freely, to tell the stories that are most meaningful to us. And what's more, an abstract artwork requires something of you that a figurative painting might not. The pleasure of your presence is requested. Pull up a chair, take a seat, and let the painting become fully itself only with your own participation. An abstract painting isn't withholding itself from you. It's offering a hand and inviting you in. In this episode, we're going to unpack this idea, object by object. Whether you're standing in the galleries of the Addison Gallery of American Art, or if you're listening to this in your car, or as you fold socks, what matters is that we're going to move together from Agnes Martin to Jackson Pollock to Mark Bradford to Jasper Johns to Donald Judd, all with the aim of exploring their different takes on this very deceptively simple idea, how we can find meaning in artworks that don't offer a fixed discernible narrative, and moreover, show you how valuable your presence is throughout this experience. So let's start with Agnes Martin. Sometimes what is abstract visually is speaking to something unnameable inside the viewer. Take, for example, her gentle Untitled from 1960. Martin was a Canadian-American who, in the grand tradition of loner women artists like Georgia O'Keeffe and Louise Bourgeois, lived to the ripe old age of 98 and continued to create almost until her death. And her work is easy to overlook. You can glance at one briefly and be forgiven for thinking that there's nothing there. When the paper is, in fact, covered by monochromatic, quiet, even grids of graphite, like the stitching of a hem. You don't even see the markings until you come close, like leaning into someone who has a quiet voice. And yet, once you're there, it's mesmerizing. The emptiness, which is largely attributed to her childhood growing up surrounded by vast Saskatchewan prairies, draws you into the meditative and repetitive quality of the markings. And, in spite of yourself, you find yourself being given a screen upon which to both probe and project your own emotional quality of mind. And these aren't computerized grids, either. They're deliberately imperfect. The trace of her own hand is unmistakable. And so these lines don't feel constraining. What you might notice, though, is that your optic nerve has become so starved for sensation from the creamy paper and smudgy gray pencil markings that you start to see colors and shapes dancing and pulsing behind the grids. And this, Martin writes, is the sense of joy beneath the surface. Her work is, in fact, about tapping into these larger emotions, innocence, happiness, the sublime. Why is it, she asks, that people can expect pure emotion from music, but they demand an explanation from art? What is it to be human if not to experience a vast range of abstract emotions and feelings that we can never quite put a name to? And in this way, Martin's explorations of abstraction, 
which one can't help but tie back to her own personal struggles with isolation and mental illness, are about what the specificity of representational painting could never address. The indescribable abstraction of our own feelings, presented in a way that is itself a process. Her work, those gentle, repeated pencil marks, are as much a mantra as a visual experience, repeated incessantly like a sound, like singing Tibetan bowls, alternately emptying and filling her vacant and oceanic states of mind with inspiration, in her words. So onward to Jackson Pollock. These subconscious emotional states that we've just talked about ripple across the movement of abstract expressionism, which Martin considered herself a part of. But what she asks of your mind, Pollock, perhaps the most well-known abstract expressionist, asks of your body. It's hard not to find yourself swaying in front of a Pollock painting like Phosphorescence from 1948, Though quite a bit smaller than his famously wall-sized canvases, it's still bursting with rhythmic, spastic drips of paint. White lines shoot across the canvas, creating what curator Francis V. O'Connor describes as, quote, a metallic veil, cloaking the surface in grids as dynamically irregular as Agnes Martin's are so organized and calm. Yet for all their materiality, for as luscious as these thick gobs of paint are, there is just as much happening beneath the surface. Pollock, like Martin, was famously influenced by larger existential philosophies that attempted to demystify our unique yet collective understanding of ourselves. But where Martin delved into Eastern Taoism, Pollock explored Jungian psychoanalysis, particularly during a troubled period in 1938 when he was trying to get a handle on his alcoholism. Jung's espousal of the integration of opposites, conscious and unconscious, order and disorder, resulted in Pollock's almost obsessive fascination with consciousness itself, its impossible yet deeply human dialectic, and how such intense subjectivity could be objectively represented on a canvas. And this is where his body enters the picture. Quite literally, in fact, as Pollock would lay the canvas on the floor and enter it from all sides, famously grinding cigarette butts and various bits of detritus from his own studio floor into the paint with his shoes. And so what we see in a Pollock painting is the movement of his own body, of his own physicality entering the space, tracing the drip back to the action that flung it. The psychic energy that we're left with is the result of this physical energy. You don't get the kind of thrown drip without the action of an arm throwing it. And the abstract part of this physical expressiveness is the cornerstone of how free it feels. There is, of course, nothing figural being represented. It's only pure emotion, pure physicality, pure free association liberated from the constraints of narrative and its pesky fixed meanings. There's nothing to unpack or recognize, only beautifully organized chaos, a colorful nest like spun sugar, where foreground and background seamlessly alternate, where visual hierarchy is collapsed. This Jungian juxtaposition of control and utter lack of control result in a canvas that has no intention of being read only given over to, 
in exchange for an extra involuntary little bounce in your step. So onward to Mark Bradford. Of course, when you give yourself over to an abstract work, you largely fill in the narrative holes that aren't there. It's just how our lizard brains work. Even as we meditate on and lose ourselves in the lack of fixed narratives, we find ourselves creating them, creating associations the longer we stare, like seeing objects in clouds or in Rorschach tests. And like those ink blots, we can learn something meaningful about ourselves, and if we really care to, something meaningful about the artists themselves. It's not an accident that we find ourselves so invested in Agnes Martin's schizophrenia or in Jackson Pollock's alcoholism. We want to understand the minds that could attempt to release themselves from narrative and encourage us to. But there are also artists who revel in our brain's need to find narrative threads in non-narrative forms. The artist Mark Bradford can create a canvas that on its surface looks a lot like a Pollock, thick crisscross lines, ground-in bric-a-brac, richly textured and enormously visually complex, yet oddly and pleasingly organized in its chaos. But unlike Pollock, Bradford's work isn't as interested in our physical or even our metaphysical response, but in our social response. The objects that comprise the texture are meaningful to Bradford. They contained a quote-unquote built-in history, scavenged from every nook and cranny of his south-central LA neighborhood, and include bits of billboards, ads, foil, string, even end papers from beauty shops, which he then manipulates into these painterly and topographical canvases, a guided map that tells the story of his urban community. And it's this mixed media approach that makes his work particularly compelling, because we never know what we're going to find as we get closer to this incredible visual terrain. His own scavenger hunts around his city become ours inside his work. And the more we find, the richer the narratives become. Quote, for me, it's always been a detail, he writes, a detail that points to a larger thing, end quote. These details, small utilitarian bits of life being lived, and especially lived in communities that tend to not get the attention of the typical art market, are not only honored in Bradford's work, but elevated. This work, Crossing the Threshold, is taken from a title of a book Bradford read on the Sistine Chapel and the apparent coded meaning it contains. And whether or not these meanings exist, the idea that these discarded crumbs of lived experience can have the opportunity to transcend their value and cross the threshold into both a reference to the highest peaks of the art world, that is, the Sistine Chapel, and such potent personal spiritual significance that Bradford experiences speak to the breadth of multitudes that an abstract painting can contain. Okay, but now let Jasper Johns bring us back down to earth. A painting can contain textured pieces, parts, shapes, and symbols that, left to their own devices, are just that. Materials, shapes, and symbols. A book left on the shelf is just paper and ink and glue. We need to read it to pull any meaning from it. 
And this is exactly what Jasper Johns is saying when he takes recognizable images like circles within circles that we, just like revolutionary-era Russian farmers, should all be able to recognize, and points out in his piece Target from 1958 that it only becomes a target and everything a target implies because our interpretation has made it a target. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, if we look at this and think about target practice, about weaponry, about the danger of standing too close, then we are tapping into the fact that, once again, we are a critical part of the art viewing experience. John's delights in taking images that carry significant cultural weight, things that, in his words, quote, the mind already knows, like the American flag, letters, numbers, and here, a target and introducing those minds to, indeed, what they already know. We know what the stars and stripes mean to us. And we also know that these objective shapes can mean wholly subjective things. That flag might mean something very different to the person standing next to you in a gallery. And at the same time, Johns is also just pairing these cultural symbols back down to their visual essentials. That is, stars and stripes. Or here, circles within circles. After all, what does it take for an abstract shape to become a symbol? Us. So finally, Donald Judd. Of course, sometimes the value of abstraction is to release your mind from thinking about anything other than the presence of the thing that is, you know, in your presence. It's always fun to consider the meditative lines or energetic flicks of abstract expressionism when compared to the work of a minimalist like Donald Judd, who, we should note, flatly disavowed the label. What, he asked, is minimal about my work? And if you stand in front of the fabricated steel of Two Susan Buckwalter from 1965, you'll see that it's comprised of metal boxes and a Harley Davidson hi-fi blue tube, structured with a predetermined system so as to circumvent any artistic spontaneity, and which he adamantly refused to call sculpture, given that it wasn't, you know, actually sculpted. And this work is one of his earliest forays into the work that would come to define his style. Confident, clear, as strong as 1960s manhood itself. It doesn't feel minimal, as in diminutive. Instead, it feels objective and undeniable, which ironically was minimalism's point, that undeniability. The movement rose largely as a response to the emotional subjectivity of abstract expressionism, with the goal of reinstating the object as the plain and simple and incontrovertible thing that it was. And ugh, to be as calmly self-possessed and sure-footed as a Donald Judd artwork. These freestanding or mounted specific objects, as he labeled them, are the height of the most effortless kind of cool. They don't need to represent anything. Unlike Pollock, they don't need to tap into your subconscious or release your inner joy like Martin does. And like Pollock, they're free from compositional hierarchy, 
No box is any more artistically poignant than another. They stand unequivocally on their own. They're made of industrial materials fabricated off-site that hold no meaning on their own. And because they don't do anything, don't mean anything, they expose the essence of the space that they inhabit, which you inhabit too. And here, again, we as the viewers are invited into the realm of the artwork. In the same way that avant-garde theater at the time broke down the fourth wall, Judd's objects are content to share your space so unremarkably that there's no more space for emotional analysis with them as with your nightstand. They simply, unapologetically exist. And after so many millennia of frames and the ages, it's kind of a trip to invite art into our space like this, to recognize that we share the same air. It's not where we usually think art is supposed to live, given how high-minded it so often is, how evocative, how transcendent from the everyday. To allow an artwork its simple, confident presence as we move around it, is to allow that maybe there's a little more art than we think there is in our normal life, and a little more of us in it, if we choose to acknowledge it. So have I convinced you to stick around? I hope so. Because clearly, abstraction needs you. It needs your complexity and your curiosity. It needs all the wonderful stories you tell yourself in your head. So stay. Take a seat, uncross your arms, take the offered hand, and prepare to be amazed at the stories that you can unearth when you're welcomed into these open, unrealized, and unchartered spaces, and when you offer it the pleasure of your presence. A great big thank you to the Addison staff, present and past. You can find these episodes as they're being released, beginning in May 2021 on the Lonely Palette feed and at the Addison Gallery of American Arts website, where you can also see all of the images and find more information about Learning to Look, the Addison at 90, which runs through fall 2021. You can also listen to The Lonely Palette at www.thelonelypalette.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.